Branding Badass, and welcome to Season 2 of Branding Matters. My guest today is Professor Ranjay Gulati, an Indian-American organizational scholar and professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Professor Gulati was ranked as one of the top 10 most cited scholars in economics and business by ISI Insight, and The Economist and Financial Times have listed him as among the top handful of business school scholars whose work is most relevant to management practice. Professor Gulati is the author of a number of books and has been a frequent guest on CNBC and other media outlets, and he's also served on the advisory boards of several entrepreneurial ventures. I invited Professor Gulati to be a guest on my show today to discuss his most recent book, Deep Purpose, The Heart and Soul of High-Performance Companies. I wanted to learn about the fatal mistakes so many leaders are making when attempting to implement a reason for being, and I was really curious to get his point of view on what brands can do to pursue purpose more deeply. Ranjay, I am so incredibly honored to have you with us here today. Welcome to Branding Matters. Pleasure to be here, Julie. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, it's such an honor for me to be totally honest with you. I was a little bit nervous. Bear with me. Hopefully we'll get through it and it'll be fun because that's ultimately the goal here. I am really delighted to be here and have a chance to talk about my learnings and journey over the last several years. Well, so am I. And it's quite a journey it's been. So before we get into what I want to talk about today, specifically being your book, I really want to learn a, bit, a little bit more about the man, Ranjay. So can you share a bit about your origin story? I mean, where are you from? And and what your parents did growing up? So I uh, grew up in New Delhi, India, and uh, I went through high school there and college there. My parents uh, both had their own uh, imprint on me, if I may say so. They were very different, but they all were also similar in some ways. My father was in the, was in the army. He was an army officer. And my mother was a school teacher turned anthropologist turned fashion designer for high-end women's fashion in Europe. So she had a kind of a very, and this is 1968-70 when India had barely opened up. So she was very, very early in this space, but they both had, you know, they were each different, but also had some common themes. So my mother always said to me, I was having a dinner with her and she said to me one day, she says, Ranjay, I hope you never have to work a day in your life. Now, mind you, my mother worked incredibly hard, like 100 hours a week all the time. So I thought she was telling me that she had done so well and accumulated so many assets that I didn't have to work. You're like, yes. I was like, yes, this sounds great, mom. I'm thrilled. Forget college. I'm not going anywhere. And then she clarified very quickly. She says, no, no, no. What I'm saying is that I wish you never have to feel like you're working. Mm. If you think I'm going to work, I'm never going to work. She says, I don't work. And I kind of sort of understood that. I kind of sort of didn't. And the other part of it always was that she always had a belief that if you put good out in the world, it finds its way back to you somehow. And even if it doesn't, that's okay. And, and, and so it was always about saying, how do you create value before you capture value? A lot of people get hung up on capture and business people in particular always first, let me see what's my share going to be. And then I'll talk about creating value next. And, and my father was very different. You know, he was a straight and narrow army officer, very simple minded. But he, you know, when you're in the military and your life, you're inherently in a risky job, you always have this kind of resilient notion of rolling with the punch. You know, just kind of, you know, you got to 
take what comes your way and kind of go with it. And he also had this other saying of his that he used to talk about, which was always saying, there's a saying in, in, in Hindi, which trans in loosely translates into, you know, do good deeds and put them into the river. Meaning, don't expect them to come back to you. Like, don't be like expectation of them. So he I love that. Yeah. And I'll tell you how these themes will come back into this book that I've just written. Yeah. In a very circuitous way. I never thought about these, these two things. I never connected them to my book even until you actually just asked me. Yeah. Well, I want to definitely get into your book. I want to learn. I love that what your dad said, by the way. That's really interesting and, and very apropos. So when did your family move to the United States? They never did. I came to the U.S. as an exchange student. I, was, I came to Washington State because my college in India had an exchange program. Yeah? And I actually was supposed to do a Ph.D. in finance because I'd done econ, econ and math as an undergraduate. It seemed natural to do business would be finance. I applied. I had good grades. I had good test scores. I was a good test yeah. taker. And I was admitted to do a Ph.D. in finance at Wharton. And then I got this exchange fellowship to go to Washington State, study two years, anything you want. And this was too good an opportunity to pass. So I came to Washington State in Pullman, Washington, and I spent two years studying computer science, psychology, fine art, music. I had the, the ultimate undergraduate experience in, in America, which we offer, which I never got in India, where you only had your required courses. There were no electives. There was no exploration. And, and somewhere over there, I came to realize that I wanted to do research. But I also had a job at that time. I was in, in Washington State, so I had a job at Microsoft. So I was torn in this opportunity between going to work for a company that was IPO and going to grow into something big, maybe, versus I, had my, I was going to do my MBA or a PhD, and, and there was a fork in the road. And I ended up, ended up doing a PhD in business at Harvard Business School. And from there, I then life continued. I went to the North, to Northwestern at the Kellogg School of Management, which was a fantastic experience for me. And then I came back to Harvard on the faculty about 15 years ago. And somewhere along the way, I got married and had two kids. So. <laughs> That's so great. So do you remember the deciding factor when you're at that fork in the row? What made you go in the direction you took? I think, you know, it went back. I had a conversation with my mother about this, actually, at that time, and my father. My mother's answer was always, what feels like work? And I said, I love research and it doesn't feel like work. And so she said, well, the answer is obvious, you know? Yeah. And I said, but there's financial upside and, you know, I could go to this and then this would happen. She's like, you know, who cares? That's so great. You know, and I asked that because I have a son who is finishing graduating high school this year and he actually wants to take some time off because he doesn't know what he wants to do. And he wants to take a gap year, as they call it. Right. And so it's always interesting. I love hearing people's stories, especially when there's that crossroads and they're not sure which way to go, what makes them choose the path that they choose. So I want to read something from your book. I've heard you say businesses today are at a crossroads. Speaking of crossroads. After years of debate, we have the opportunity to acknowledge the shortcomings of a system that only benefits the few and choose a new path that does good and not just well, which I think is exactly what we sort of just talked about. So can you elaborate on that quote? Look, I think what's happening is we are in very polarized times. I don't need to tell anybody that, right? Everything has been polarized. There isn't an issue that doesn't get polarized, no matter what it is. And we draw sharp lines, dividing lines, which side are you on, this side or that side. And then the same thing is happening around this role of business. There are those, and it all hovers around this word, word around what is the purpose of business. And I think it's somehow gotten a very kind of uh, loaded. On the one side are those who 
said at one point that purpose of business is to make money for shareholders. They give shareholders give you money, you put that money at risk, and they should get a return for that taking that risk. So you managers, and it was at the time, don't forget, at the time it was done for the very good reason that some managers of public companies would treat it like their personal kitty. And it was reminding them, saying, uh-uh, that's not your money you're playing with. It's somebody else's money. And you don't go around, you know, playing with it like it's your own money. So don't forget shareholder value. You're here to generate shareholder value, not to line your pockets or to do whatever is your own calling in life. So don't forget that. We have the other extreme now emerging where they say purpose of business is anything but shareholder value, anything but profit. Now, you can't run a business as a nonprofit, nor can you run a business anymore as only for shareholders. I think there is a growing realization. So first you might say, well, there's regulatory concern. The governments are mandating, you better do environment, you better do this, you better do that. You better have diversity, you better. So one is it's a risk management exercise. What's the minimum I got to do to get these people off my back? I need a license to operate, limited liability corporation. And to get my limited liability, I need governments to allow me to do all these things. So fine, what do you need me to give you? Right. So that's one perspective. And, and they have, they parade a purpose statement and I call that shallow or convenient purpose. And some of them are outright egregious. I mean, Serenos, before they got caught for fraud, had a purpose. Purdue Pharmaceuticals selling, uh, you know, opioids had a purpose. Enron had a purpose. And I can go on and on. Facebook says they have a purpose. Can I stop you right there before we continue on? I want to address the term purpose because everybody says it, everybody uses it. So can we back up a little bit? And what does it mean to have a purpose? What does it mean when a brand is purpose-driven? So I'm glad you're going to basics and thinking about like, okay, let's just get down to the fundamental. Yeah, right. What is For all us non-Harvard graduates. <laughs> no, no, no. So look, purpose is fundamentally has been an individual construct. It was really about an individual human beings, Socrates, Aristotle, ancient philosophers from India to China to everywhere to modern day, Viktor Frankl to Dalai Lama. Everyone talks about purpose. Now, I think for me, the most compelling definition was one by a Stanford psychologist named William Damon, who in 2008 described purpose is a psychologist. So I'm going to keep it very precise and sharp. He says purpose is. I have a psych. I'm a psych major, so I'm I'm speaking your language. (laughs) Good. I like them for their precision, right? They have precision in concepts and constructs. Otherwise, it gets loosey-goosey very fast. So purpose is a stable and generalized intention to accomplish something that is at the same time meaningful to the self and consequential for the world beyond the self. So that's purpose for me, you know? And we have the old, there's so many cliches saying, the old one saying Mark Twain or somebody said that, the two biggest days in your life are the day you were born and the day you realize why you were born. I mean, there's so many other kind of stories like that that have been told about this idea of having a stable, generalized intention to accomplish something that is meaningful to you and to the world around you. Applying this to organizations gets messy, right? So yeah. people confuse purpose with purpose statement. Yeah, it's mission. And maybe it is, you know, maybe it is, but I don't think it is necessarily. I think purpose is something much deeper than writing it down in words. And I say that because a lot of people write things down in words and don't do anything with it. It's wallpaper. And others don't even write it down, but they really deeply believe in a purpose. So I thought, what is purpose? Is it what kind is it an ideal? And what was this ideal? And you can see it sometimes is captured in words. Sometimes it's captured in words. And sometimes companies even evolve it. Like, for instance, Microsoft, the company that I mentioned to you, I know from early days, when Bill Gates was the CEO, it was to put a computer on every desk and in every home. 
it then evolved into some long complicated seminar under Obama and then Nadella came and he turned it into to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. But that's not the purpose. As Satya told me himself and when I interviewed him, he said, look, that's not the purpose. He said, writing it down was easy. What you do with it is much harder. So purpose is really what you do with it, right? So people get hung up on the statement itself saying, oh, uh, having a statement makes me purpose. And, you know, I have to say, I really wanted to write a book with a one word title. It just felt right. Grit was my, uh, the book I admired the most. I said, I'm going to write a one word title book. And then I, I wanted to call it purpose. I said, oh God, I got it. And I couldn't because people confuse that with this having a statement of a purpose. And I had to call it deep purpose because there was so much, so much superficial purpose. And so I, you know, had to kind of work my way into this idea that I couldn't call it purpose. So I want to just, so what is purpose? I didn't answer your question. I'm rambling around over no, here. No, you did. You did. I, I, if I were to summarize it based on what you just said, see here, we're in like one of your classes here. <laughs> if I were to summarize what you just said, to me, when a brand has a purpose or is purpose driven, it's not only doing something good as far as for themselves on a financial level, but doing good for the world, for doing better than just what's in your immediate financial gain, but the gain of others. Is that fair to say in a real simple term? Yes, but let me put it this way. So a purpose for an organization has four components to it. First, it's ambitious. It has goals. We are going to conquer the world, you know, or we're going to sell this product or service like to the world. The second, it has an idealistic cast. It has this kind of duty element with it. How we're going to do something that we is meaningful to us, but also makes a difference in the world. Also, the second part to it, it has right. an idealistic cast. Look at the Microsoft statement. The third element is it, it inherently encompasses a broad array of stakeholders. Because of this idealist, it's talking about shareholders and others to employees, customers, communities, society, the planet. And it usually gets you to think hard about not just the short term, but also the long term. You're casting your shadow because when you think of purpose, it's not like my purpose is to what my numbers are going to be this quarter. My purpose is when are we going to be in 10, 20, 30, 50 years? Why are we here? Why did we get created? And so it inherently, it's a forcing mechanism. So when we interrogate our own purpose, it forces us to think about our own mortality it forces us to think about our own legacy. And all those, that, the same kind of questions get asked of businesses when they contemplate purpose. But we confuse it, you know, it's like, oh, shareholder value, no, it's per, not profit. <laughs> yeah. And it's well, a bit of a mess. Well, I love what you said about deep purpose. So let's get into your book. You called it Deep Purpose. I think it's a great name. And again, I'm going to take another quote from your book where you say, to get purpose right, leaders must fundamentally change not only how they execute it, but also how they conceive of and relate to it. They must practice deep purpose. So what does that mean to practice deep purpose? So first I got confused, to be honest with you. I would hear soulful statements from people, especially from founders who left their company and came back. So Howard Schultz left Starbucks and then came back. And you know what he said? His first observation was, I've come back because Starbucks has lost its soul. When, Bill, when Steve Jobs first came back to Apple in version 2.0, he said the same thing. Apple has lost its soul. If you look at what Satya said when he took over Microsoft to turn it around, he said, we must rediscover our soul. 
our unique core. We must understand and embrace what only Microsoft can contribute to the world and how we can once again change them. So this sounds so idealistic, expansive, big, and you're like, what are they saying? You know, this sounds really touchy-feely. In fact, I wrote an article a few years ago called The Soul of a Startup. I'm Indian. I can relate to the idea of having a soul. I'm like, what is it? Like, what is it? And that was kind of problematic and confusing to me. And I've come to realize that purpose is not some kind of management tool. That's why I said it's not a mission statement. Right. It's really an existential intent. Why am I here? Which is the question we ask ourselves when we think about the word purpose. But once we come to some grips with it, we start to then think of it as our worldview, what is also called sense-making. How do I see the world? I see the world differently when I have a clear idea of what my purpose is. I also see myself differently. We call it identity. Who am I? And we also look at our motives differently. Why do I do what I do? And so it was, it's, a, it's a profound idea, which then in business parlance shapes your strategy, right? It shapes your tactics. It shapes your vision. It shapes your values and principles and your culture. It shapes and permeates everything you do. Otherwise, it looks like a, I can do, I know my strategy. I know my vision. I know my values. And I know my tactics. So why do I need to ask the why question? It's so abstract. But the why question gives you so much clarity about everything else. But you really got to understand. In fact, I was talking to another very impressive leader this morning for an interview I was doing. And I try to clarify with her what is purpose. And she said, look, you have to understand you're confusing what we do with why we do. Mm -hmm. It's very important to us to answer the why question. Otherwise, we can get bogged down only in the what. Well, Simon Sinek talks about that, right? The golden circle. You know about that? Where he Absolutely. goes right to the Simon why. Is a great thinker in this regard who really yeah. brought this idea into the public sphere. Yeah. So I'm going to back up for a second because I wrote down something while you were talking. I didn't want to interrupt you. Before you talked about government mandating and government mandating certain things for businesses. What about the concept, though, or what's happening today where the consumer is actually mandating or maybe not mandating, but the consumer is demanding? Because now more than ever, and I see, especially as a younger generation where they are coming up, they're entering the workforce and they have these strong beliefs, you know, whether it's about the sustainability or how products are made and everything else. And they're demanding that from brands. So they're saying, we're going to buy from you, but only if you let us behind the curtain and we want to see what you're doing and if it's done ethically and what your purpose is. And if it aligns with my purpose, I'm going to buy from you. So what about all these brands out there that are kind of hopping on the purpose train? Because they, again, it goes back to the money and they want to make money. So they're going to tell the consumer what they think the consumer wants to hear. So it becomes greenwashing. So what do you have to say about that? So I think what's happened around purpose is it's really played into the hands of cynics. And we live in a very cynical world today. And I think business hasn't done itself any favors when you have companies parading purpose at a very convenient level. I would tell you how many companies are really deep purpose, a very small fraction. The vast majority are, you know, in this game of posturing. And that makes everybody cynical, which may, which raises the bar even higher for those who are genuinely doing something because you always question their motives saying, I don't believe it. And so it becomes harder, but let's think about what the intent, intention of deep purpose companies is. 
when you're truly living your purpose and customers see that and see evidence of that, you have to unfortunately prove to them the onus is on you to prove burden of proof is on you that you really mean it and you take credible action around it. What does it generate? It generates trust. And in today's world, trust is a major currency, right? Trust means that, you know, I think you'll do the right thing. I, I trust you to be on the right side of things. You have good intentions. You're, you're not going to do anything wrong. And that's the customer side of it. I think the employee brand is as important today because of the what we are seeing. Talent is a hard thing to find. And that's another part of brand. Today, employees have much more voice. Think about all the employee walkouts and protests and Facebook and Delta Airlines and so many other places where employees say unacceptable. And it's not just the whistleblowers like you had at Facebook. It's broad scale, not rebellion, but definitely a revolt of sorts. So you start to see, and customers are coming in that way as well, trying to lead boycotts, organizing, we want, we don't want to buy from them anymore. And now put yourself in the role of a CEO or a leader of a company trying to navigate this because some of these issues are politically charged, right? What's your view on sustainability? Oh, you're green or you're red or you're blue or you're green. You know, we have labels. Oh, woke. That's a woke. You know, so we have labels that instantly label people. And I think it makes the job of leaders much harder. But I think this idea that I can sit on the sidelines and be neutral is not going to work. And I think purpose, from a back to your branding question, I think purpose is a powerful branding tool provided there is credible backup of evidence to show that you're really deep purpose. Posturing or putting parading a purpose is not going to get you anywhere. If anything, it'll backfire because once you're found out, that's it. So can you give some examples then of some companies, some brands that are doing it right? Sure. Let's take an example, uh, Etsy. Etsy is a great example. This will tell you how polarized the debate can get on a brand. <laughs> so Etsy was the delight of everyone who thought that the business is about socially conscious capitalism. They were a certified B Corp. The founder said, we don't really care about making money. We're only here to help craft sellers sell their crafts, make a livelihood and a living. And the company just happened to take off. He had no intention of making it into what it became. Anyway, he steps aside eventually, and then the CTO takes over and does a fabulous job in taking them public also. Even at IPO, he's saying like, look, you know, we're not really big on this money business and, you know, money will come eventually, but we're not, that's not our focus. They even had a values group, a values and meaningful work group that was focused on employees. They had yoga classes. They had a whole bunch of things for employees. They said they were doing all these social projects. Every employee could think about social projects. They were also doing kind of all kinds of innovation around different things they're going to do. Minor detail. They were not making any money. So they go public and they keep saying, we're not going to make money. We don't know when we'll make money and so forth. And nine months into their IPO, finally, you know, private equity saying, this is crazy. Well, I don't know what these guys are doing, but, you know, this is irresponsible because they were growing their spending. Their marketing spending is growing and their revenue is flat. So clearly you're wasting money somewhere. Your SGNA is growing, headcount is growing, and you're not able to grow revenues and, not, and you're not making any money. But then you ask them, when you push them on social impact, they can't tell you what they're doing. They say, we're doing a lot of things. And then one person said, we are full of intentions. Getting those intentions into action is a different thing. So you get the idea of this? But what happened? I'm waiting for the punchline. Did they eventually? <laughs> the story, I'm sorry, a long, long. No, that's okay. You have a transformation story where a new CEO comes in 
not only does he tighten up on the economics of the business, which gets him into a lot of trouble, but he says, we're going to have three things we're going to measure our social impact on. Diversity, equity, inclusion, sustainability, and the economic impact for our sellers. And we're going to measure and we're going to report those on an audited basis every year with our financials. And in that process, the, also the brand, if you will, the Etsy brand, which had primarily been focused on sellers, realized they had to also focus on the buyer experience. After all, you need buyers mm-hmm. who will buy from the sellers. Of course, right? Yeah. And somehow they had a blind spot about this issue. So how then they created that idea? And into that came this notion they were also going to do things like carbon neutral. They were going to buy carbon offsets for everything that got shipped, even though Etsy never does the shipping. Etsy is a middleman, right? There are sellers and buyers. The seller ships it directly to the buyer. But Etsy said, any product bought through our platform, we will buy carbon offsets. And you know what is interesting is? Etsy sales went up after that. That's what I was waiting for. I figured there must have been something. That's amazing. I wanted to just get there, but I wanted to say that, you know what, we we... We create this guise of social responsibility, which actually sometimes is irresponsibility. And so that's why you have all this kind of backlash and cynicism saying, oh, it's just purpose washing. And I don't even believe any of this. And you see some companies doing it right. So Etsy is one example. I can give you B2B example. We all think of purpose branding as a very B2C exercise. Yeah, It's also a very B2B exercise as well. And that I can give you numerous instances of that as well. Yeah, give me a, give us an example of a business to business I'd like to hear. So a B2B example actually is a company most people would not have heard of. It's called Bueller. Bueller is a privately owned Swiss company. And it's a company which touches everybody, but no one has really heard of. And because they process grains, they process grains, for instance, 65% of the world's grains harvest are processed on a Bueller machine. So you're eating bread or lentils or anything. And by the way, 30% of rice harvests are processed on their machines, 75% of the world's malt supplies, 30% of global breakfast cereal. And if you eat lint chocolate or you eat barina pasta, you're probably eating it off their machines as well. So, you know, they're really big. And they had this idea that they wanted their purpose to be something bigger than just selling machines. It was their 100th year anniversary and they had this idea, what do we want to be? And so they came up with a phrase, which again, the words are not that important. Innovations for a better world. But what they said was that we, global warming is happening. Agriculture is going to be hugely impacted. We rely on agriculture. We need to help them. By the way, greenhouse gas emissions, huge contributor is food production. Oh, by the way, 30, 40% of all food that is produced is never consumed. It's wasted, right, in transition. So given who we are, we're right in the middle of the food value chain. So why can't we bring everybody together and talk about how can we reduce waste, improve our greenhouse gas footprint? And so that's what they've been doing. So it's, you're like, it's not what you're supposed to be doing. Now in that process, their customers come to the event, their suppliers come to the event, their partners come to their competitors come to the event. Now does that build goodwill for them? So I interviewed some of their customers who said absolutely builds goodwill for them. So, you know, you can see this happening in a range of contexts. Another one is Mahindra which I'm sure you know, Mahindra is an amazing Indian conglomerate, and they have done this across their businesses. So this is purpose branding and purpose goodwill, if you want to call it that. I would like to call it deep purpose. Wow. You know, I mentioned earlier about not only are consumers interested in demanding more purpose, but so are employees. So what can leaders do to attract those employees and retain them? 
So first thing I think on this one is that, you know, we are facing a meaning revolution right now. There's a meaning crisis going on. It's not just baby boomers. You have, you know, it's not just millennials. It's everybody, right? And people have interesting spins on it. Some say it's the great upgrade, not the great, meaning everybody wants more money. So we need to start paying everybody more, which is true. I'm not disagreeing with that. You know, and there are certain jobs that are bare subsistence jobs that are long overdue to give them a more decent human wage. I'm totally for that. But I think there's a more going on. I think there is a great rethink going on. And I think this rethink has to do with people. COVID has really forced us to think about what is our lives all about? Why am I here? What do I want to do? And what do I want to leave this world with? And I think that's forced contemplation means businesses have a lot more to do, not only to communicate their purpose, but also show employees how they can live that purpose. So I'll just give you one key point over here. I found one thing interesting. So I went to this company who are doing this purpose for the employees, and I found an interesting correlation, and I couldn't understand it. Most of them, not all, were also in parallel sort of even completely unrelated even, we're also having an initiative going on to help employees discover their own life purpose. So I'm asking them like, hey, what's the deal with that? It's not your purview that asking employees about their life. They said, no, you don't understand, as one of them explained to me. He said, you know, if employees, when they are thinking about their own life purpose, they are much more receptive to a company purpose. And I remember talking to two of my good friends in this regard, Matt Breitfelder and Frank Cooper, who were both at BlackRock at the time. And they talked about this idea that, you know, when people are thinking about their own purpose, they're more receptive to thinking about a company's purpose. And the Microsoft CHRO said it best when she said, you don't really work for, work for Microsoft until Microsoft works for you. So, you know, you start to see people like, how do I connect this really for employees? And I also saw this in real life when one of the companies I looked at actually is a sports team, the Seattle Seahawks with Pete Carroll, the coach. And he has this line also where he talks about this idea. There's magic, he said, when organizations can inspire people to align their own personal passion, self-understanding and desire for growth with a common organizational ambition. So you can't just say, here's my company purpose. Everybody memorize it and let's get all excited about it. You know, it's part of getting involved in their life journey and making it part of their, meeting them where they are. That intersection is very important and it changes the way you hire, changes the way you promote. It changes the kind of connection you're trying to build with the organization and the employee. And I, you know, and I want to touch on that, too, because what you just said, connection, which is such a powerful word, especially in branding, because it's having that connection is not mutually exclusive. It's just as much with your employees as it is with your consumers. And ideally, you all have to have the same purpose and you all have to be connected because if there's a disconnect between your employees, because they're your best brand advocates and the consumers, then that's not going to work. And if you're all about your consumers and don't care about your employees, then that's not going to work either. Right. I think the ideal situation is when it's this cohesive environment or community where you're all driven by the same purpose. I think purpose creates a common understanding. It creates a common denominator. It creates a connection. It creates trust. But I would like to separate the two out for employee and customer. And I say that because when I was writing this article, The Soul of a Startup, I was asked, I was interviewing CEOs. of. So you don't agree with what I just said. <laughs> that's good. Okay. I think no, that's true. great. It's true, but I also disagree a little bit. That's good. I love it. Yeah. 
Of course, you're trying to convince employees that if they do well for the customer, for the customer, it's going to be good for the company. And you're trying to get them to think about customers. So I totally agree with you. The purpose of business ultimately is to serve a set of customers. And you've got to make employees feel proud of the work they're doing for their customers. So I think you're absolutely right that we exist to serve our customers. And so, hey, employee, I hope you feel really proud. So if you're a healthcare company, you remind people about how their work makes a difference in customers' lives. You talk about the impact on customers. You talk about safety and reliability and quality. You bring customers in for your company retreats and have them on stage to say, your product changed my life. I All that is true. But there's more than that. Companies exist not just to serve customers only. They also need to think about serving their communities, society, and the planet. For sure. And I sorry, I wanna just I wanna just explain. <laughs> I love it. I'm having a debate here. No. What I meant by that was, for example, I'll use a company like Tesla, for example, right? So Tesla is all about the environment, doing what you can to make things more sustainable and have a greener, better healthier planet. Well, the employees that work with Tesla, you know, and obviously with Elon Musk, they're they're all passionate about that same purpose is what I'm saying. But as well as a consumer who's buying the product because they're also passionate of that. So I wasn't talking about the, the company having a purpose to sell. I'm saying that grander purpose, whether it's sustainability or clean water all over the world, your employees, that's what they believe in. And that's what they're passionate about. And that's why they work there. And that's why your consumers partner with you and buy from you because they also believe that. That's what I meant by the collective buying into that purpose. Absolutely. I think okay. that makes sense. I mean, you look yeah. at what, what Patagonia what and Ben, the two favorites everyone loves to talk about are Patagonia and Ben. Exactly. I was going to say Patagonia, but we've already talked about them a lot on my podcast. Yeah. I mean, but that's what so I was trying common. to say. Yeah. So people do a lot of this kind of convergent branding or convergent ideals and saying, hey, you customers and you employees, you buy into the same kind of end goal, which is what we believe in. And hopefully that may we have a common cause together. Right. I, and that's a fair point. I, I do think that, you know, reminding ourselves of what we're here to do, you know, I think is, is super important. I think the problem in all these ideals is how do you take it down to the lowest level in the organization? You know, I can have convergent thinking about saving the environment if I'm the CEO, C-suite executive, we get together in offsites, we talk about changing the world environment. Then you go down to the frontline worker who's on the assembly line. How do you connect it to them? And I I must share with you some research that really inspired me to think about this. And this was um, these two researchers, one at Yale, one at Michigan, who looked at how people think about their jobs. So there were three kinds of, they had a taxonomy they came up with based on their own research and and they were going to test it. One was people think of their work as a job. My work is a job, I do it to make money. A second one was my work is a career. I do it to get ahead. I want to move up the chain of command. I want influence, I want power, I want status. A third is my work is a calling. I do it because it gives me meaning. Now, these are not mutually exclusive. Everyone, even calling people want to get paid. And maybe (laughs) they want to get promoted too, but the primary reason why we go to work. So they tested this in a hospital in New York and they were going to see what kind of, they were hoping that the doctors would be calling and the janitors would be job. Well, guess what they found? The doctors was one third, one third, one third. Only one third said calling. That was not surprising to them. The janitor number came in at one third, one third, one third. So then the question was, who are these one third janitors who say my work is a calling? 
And so they went out and interviewed these janitors and they found, they said, oh, I don't come here to clean. Uh, I'm here to help people. Uh, people are in a very vulnerable situation. I do small things and they are so grateful. I'm so happy to be able to make a difference. And so this is what I do. And so we understand that, you know, when we create sense of pride, when we create sense of meaning, it elevates people's performance at work, how they show up. Similarly, it creates intense loyalty for the, in the customer's eyes who gets that interface from the, from the employee. So I think it's important to understand the virtuous loop we can create when we have deep purpose. It creates deep connection with your customers and it keeps deep connection with your employees and it creates deep connection between the customer and the employee as well. That's what I was trying to say. And I love you said it way more eloquently than I did. So thank you for saying that. And I love how, you know what, we're, we're ending full circle where we talked about your mother's story. And the first thing she said to you, or one of the most important things she said to you is, I don't want you to work and, you know, and finding your real purpose. Okay, so Ranjay, before we go, I do have to ask you one more question. There's a famous American financial advisor. A lot of people know her, Susie Orman. You see her all over social media and I've seen her on TV. And she has a very famous quote. And it says, your net worth equals your self-worth. So what do you think about that quote? What do you have to say? So look, I, I'm, I admire Susie for all that she's done to really publicize the importance of financial planning in our lives. But I respectfully disagree. I have come to realize that self-worth is so much more paramount. And net worth follows. And you know, I had the privilege to interview Deepak Chopra for a series I was doing at CNN last year. And he actually talked about this distinction. And I think the point he made was there are plenty of people who have a very high net worth, but very low self-worth. Yeah. And there are others who have very low net worth, but very high self-worth. So, of course, you can make the argument that there is a small correlation. It is correlated. Maybe maybe. Money in the bank makes you feel a little better about yourself. But I think self-worth comes from a much deeper place. If your self-worth is only connected and tied to your net worth, it's a very fragile self-worth. So I feel self-worth comes from a much deeper place. And I think all of us should be asking. I think the one thing COVID has given us is we all should expect more of our lives. We all should expect more of our jobs. And our employers. And one way to do that is to come at it from a place of deep purpose and self-worth. Deep purpose is the unlock into self-worth. In the Indian tradition, which is my uh, country of origin, there is a word we, that is used called dharma. Now, there's no literal translation of the Sanskrit word into English. The loosest translation would be duty but it's actually much bigger than duty. It's really about what is my place in the world. Hmm. And they say, everyone needs to come and discover for themselves what is your place in the world. And when you do, everything unlocks for you. A lot of us struggle with that question. And I think maybe now is this has been a great time to introspect and ask ourselves that question and also think about our path forward. So that's my wish for everybody, including myself and you and all of us. Yeah, that's so great. I love that. And, I, you know, I really love what you said that about people that have super high net worth don't necessarily have a lot of self-worth. I, I had a guest on actually, and he, I think he's, you know, his net worth is in the millions, if not billions, but, you know, he struggled. He had childhood trauma. 
right? And so he's, to this day, he was sharing that he's very open about his self-worth struggles. And he said he knows a lot of people in the same boat. So it had nothing to do with their net worth. And I think that janitor story is a great example of someone with maybe not the highest net worth, but he had huge self-worth, right? And that was his purpose, was helping people. So great way to end this amazing conversation. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. So your book is called Deep Purpose. And if people want to find it, where can they get it? So look, you can always go to deeppurpose.net which is a website I maintain where I have summaries of the book. I have video summaries of the book. I have kind of a audio summaries of the book, synopses around it. You can also go to my LinkedIn page where I have a, a monthly newsletter for lack of a better term, but I just put out some a one pager every month. And in there, I've also summarized the book. My take is not to have you buy the book if you don't want to, but to get the message and theme of the book. And you're not a good salesman. I'll be your salesperson. Get the book. It's great. That's so funny. So you mentioned LinkedIn. So what's your, first of all, how can they find you? People find you on LinkedIn. Ranjay Gulati. You can go to R-A-N-J-A-Y-G-U-L-A-T-I. Okay, and great. you will find me on LinkedIn. There aren't any other Ranjay Gulatis on LinkedIn. So far. Wonderful. And are you on any other social platforms? Uh, also on Twitter. I think I saw you on TikTok, didn't I? <laughs> no, you didn't see me on TikTok. I'm, no, I'm not quite there yet. How old are your kids? My kids, my daughter is 16. She's oh, on TikTok. She's probably on, right? And my son is actually now 25. Oh, okay. I was just teasing. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I know you have to go, so I won't keep you. We'll talk again soon, hopefully. It was really nice to be connected. What a pleasure. Nice to meet you. I will tell Scott I had a wonderful time talking to you, so... Oh, yeah, I'm so glad. Like to talk. Get Likewise. To know. Yeah. Well, I hope we get to meet in person soon. Yes, I hope so. All right. Take, take care. care. Bye. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. But most of all, I hope you had some fun. This show is a work in progress, so please remember to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And if you want to learn more about me and what I do to help my clients with their branding, feel free to reach out to me on any of the social channels under, you guessed it, Branding Badass. Branding Matters was produced, edited, and hosted by Jolie Goodson, also me. So thanks again, and until next time, here's to all you badasses out there.